Well, once again, good morning to everybody. Glad to be with you as we are joining as God's people. Um, one, one brief announcement, uh, actually a couple brief announcements. First, if, uh, if you are new to Hope, relatively new to Hope, and haven't had a chance to come to a Discovering Hope class or meeting, I guess we should call it, it's not really a class, uh, we're going to be having lunch at the church office right after the service here, probably around 12, 15 or so, we'll get started over there. So if you haven't already signed up, you're still welcome to come. We have enough food to come enjoy some lunch. Uh, we'll have a chance to hear a little bit about our church, its history, ask any questions you may have, and learn, learn about the process of getting involved with the church. So please, please join us for that if you're able. And then second, uh, as uh, we're actually going to talk about this today. This wasn't planned on my part. I guess the Spirit planned this. But um, uh, there's a lot of places in our church where there are opportunities to get involved and serve. One of those being uh, our Hope Kids ministry. We love Love our Hope Kids ministry. We are so appreciative of the people that spend time each month out of their time to go and teach our young minds and hearts about the Lord and Jesus. Uh, But we are still kind of rebuilding after COVID to get back to where we can have all of our kids up through fifth grade uh, go and enjoy that time during our service together. So if that is something that uh, you might be interested in helping with, please come talk to me uh, or talk to uh, one of our elders. Uh, We would love to help you get involved in doing that. All right, with that, uh, let's open to 1 Peter chapter 4. So we're continuing our series in 1 Peter. Today we're going to be reading verses 7 through 11. And so if you go ahead and open that in your Bibles. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll read our passage this morning together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And this morning we ask that what our our ears hear, what our minds comprehend, we ask that our hearts would also rejoice in as we hear you speak to us. And so we ask your spirit, ask, thank you, Spirit, that you are with us. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's read together from 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. <clears throat> the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's God's word. There's a line from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that was coming to mind often as I was preparing this message. Paul says that when Jesus returns... It's going to be preceded by a trumpet. In a moment, Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. That's a thought that got caught in my mind. I hope it gets caught in yours too. Um, I've got a lot of questions as I think about what that moment will be like as a trumpet sounds to announce the return of the king. Is it going to be from a single point and it will be loud enough that everyone can hear it on earth, which would 
probably requires some eardrum healing afterwards by Jesus. What kind of trumpet will it sound like? What will the timber be? What kind of song will be appropriate to announce the coming of Jesus? And perhaps the most, you know, sharp question for us is when? When is that going to happen? And that's a question that no person on earth knows the answer to. We might hear that trumpet sometime during the sermon. It might happen in another thousand years or some other time. But that day is coming. The king is coming. And when he comes, this time we know that he's not going to leave us. And Peter says at the beginning of this passage that the end of all things is at hand. Now, all throughout this book, Peter has been hinting at this idea. He's kind of nodding towards this reality that Jesus is going to return. And when Jesus returns, he's going to make things right for all of God's people who have suffered for his sake. And here, Peter is underscoring what that reality means for our lives today. The vision of the future, when Jesus makes all things right, is encouraging to us. But it is kind of a future-oriented thought. That's something that's going to happen in the future. But the fact that Jesus is going to come back and that he might come back at any time has implications, Peter says, for us right now. It has implications for us today and how we live. And those implications might not be exactly what you expect them to be. They're a bit surprising. But Peter wants us, as God's people, to be preparing for the end. And he wants us to prepare for the end by protecting our prayer And he wants us to prepare for the end by loving our Christian siblings well. So we're going to look at those three things today. First, that we prepare for the end. And second, we prepare for the end by protecting our prayer. And then third, we do that by loving our Christian siblings well. And it's my hope and it's my prayer for all of us here that Peter's words would would give us the right kind of shake to our spiritual hearts and lives But more specifically, if Jesus comes back when some people in this room are alive, my hope is that he would return to find a group of believers who are ready for him and who are watchful and who are waiting well for Jesus. So that's what I hope our passage helps us do today. Now, uh, briefly, before we look at this point, uh, these, these points from our passage, this passage today is, is an exhortation passage, which means it, it's telling us to do something as Christians. Um, Peter's telling believers of Jesus how we're supposed to live. And so we're going to look at those instructions without any apology for the fact Scripture's telling us we need to do something as believers. Uh, Peter's not saying that these things save us. He's not saying that our salvation is dependent on our actions or how good we are. But he is saying that the way in which believers respond to the love that we've received from Christ, the way we respond is by following God and acting, acting in a certain way. And that's what he's encouraging us to do today in our passage. So, with that, let's take a look at our first point. As believers, we prepare for the end. So, if you've got your Bibles, look down with me again at the beginning of verse 7. Peter says this, The end of all things is at hand. Excuse me. Now that first phrase that Peter's using, the end of all things is, is at hand, It kind of has these two dual realities that Peter's referencing here. The first is that when Jesus, God's the uh, the Son of God, came to be a man and came to live among us, to die for his followers, was raised again, and then ascended up into heaven, 
that those events ushered us into a new period of salvation history. In fact, it ushered us into the final period of salvation history before Jesus returns again. So that's what we, we're living in a sense in the end. We're living in the end right now because that is, that's the time we're living in between when Jesus came and when, and when he died, rose again, and when he's coming again. Some theologians like to call this the already but the not yet. We're living in the already, which means we know what's going to happen at the end, and we know how Jesus has saved his followers. But we also live in the not yet. And that's the second part of this dual reality that Peter's talking about. The second return of Jesus and how at that second coming, when Jesus comes back again, that's going to bring the judgment of all people who have ever lived. And Peter says that that time, Jesus returning, is at hand. And another way of translating that might be to say that, that the end of all things is drawing near. Right? That's actually a verb there. That words, those words at hand are a verb that, mean drawing, that means drawing near. Now, I don't think we often consider Jesus' return as something that's drawing near. In fact, in my mind, when I think about Jesus' return, it can sometimes feel perhaps a little bit distant, perhaps with a touch of resignation that I might not be alive to hear that trumpet, although I know I'll be raised from the dead on that day. Jesus' return might not feel close. And some of that's probably also, when we, when we read something like this, that Peter says the end of all things is at hand, we look and say, well, it's, it's been 2,000 years right, since Peter wrote that. So what exactly does it mean when Peter says that the end of all things is at hand? So one commentator writes that the issue with our perception of what's at hand, or the issue of our perception of what's close, what's drawing near, is that we measure proximity to something using units of time, which is kind of an abstract, weird concept, kind of a fun concept to think about. Uh, but the idea essentially is that we would consider anything that whatever we're doing this afternoon, we would consider that to be drawing near because it's not too far, too far away. There's a relatively short amount of time between now and then. We're time-bound creatures, so that makes sense. But that is not how God measures proximity because he created time and he's outside of time. He's eternal, the eternal God. He's outside of time. Uh, what, what he created, what's drawing near for God, isn't really, can't be measured using units of time. So from the perspective of eternity, comparing eternity against a day or a couple hours, or comparing eternity against a thousand years because eternity is the comparison, there's not a huge difference in those things. In fact, Peter himself will, will write this in 2 Peter 3.8 when he says that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Echoing teaching from the Old Testament. And because we're creatures bound by time, these two truths that Peter says Jesus is drawing near, but with God a thousand years is, like, is as a day, those things can cause us to get kind of lax. I think we can be in danger of slipping into kind of this probability mode that uh, of all the past, all these Sunday afternoons in the past 2,000 years that have happened since Peter wrote this, Jesus hasn't returned during, during those Sunday afternoons. So chances are it doesn't seem like he's going to return today either. But that is the danger that Peter wants us to confront. He wants us to live our lives in light of the truth that Jesus will return. It's going to be sudden. And if we want to live godly lives, we have to live our lives with the expectation that Jesus might return at any given moment. 
Now, if any of you have ever had a spouse or a close friend or a family member deployed in the military, getting ready for them to return home might have given you a small sense of this anticipation. Or perhaps they've been traveling for some long period of time and they're about to come home. And you start to change how you live, right? There's kind of the sharpened sense of excitement that they're, they're going to be here. You might be preparing a special meal or preparing their room in a certain way. Because it's, as people are getting close to coming, as this person's getting close to coming back, you're living with this sense of anticipation. They're going to be here. They're going to be here soon. And Peter wants us to recognize that same concept. The trick is for us, we don't know when Jesus is going to come back. But as Peter says, in God's sight, the end of all things is already at hand. So, Peter encourages us, we have to live in a way that anticipates and prepares for that return, for the end of all things. And the first way that Peter gives us to do that is by protecting our prayer. So, let's take a look at our second point. The way we prepare for the end is by protecting our prayer. So in thinking about all the priorities Peter might have had when he was encouraging his audience to live in light of Jesus' return, this might not have been the first thing you would think he would emphasize. That's what he says. If you look at the second half of verse 7, he says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now you might remember Peter was one of the disciples that Jesus took with him into Gethsemane to pray with Jesus before he was crucified. And while Jesus was praying to the Father to take the cup of suffering from him, he told Peter and the other two disciples to stay awake and to watch and pray so that they wouldn't fall into temptation. So, if we ask the question, why does Peter start with prayer? It's the reason for the end, the way that we prepare for the end of all things. We can take from that that one of the most important tasks of the Christian is to watch and wait for Jesus, and prayer is a critical part of that. And something I find remarkable, if you've read many biographies of Christians, our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, and especially those who have suffered a great deal for the sake of Jesus and who have persevered, their prayer life was often a very fundamental part of their faith. One example, Corey Ten Boom lived during World War II, And her prayer life was a fundamental part of her faith. Her family helped Jews escape the Nazis until her family was caught and sent to a concentration camp. She survived. After the experience, she said this about her own prayer life. What wings are to a bird and sails to a ship, so is prayer to the soul. Read that one more time so you catch it. What wings are to a bird and sails to a ship, so is prayer to the soul. I have no doubt that many in Peter's audience were learning, when he wrote this, that one of the gifts of suffering for the sake of Jesus is that those times of suffering provide powerful opportunities for God to show his people that he is going to be faithful to his promises to uphold and strengthen and care for his children. As we pray during times of suffering, our hearts are being taught to rely not on ourselves, but on our God. And when we entrust ourselves to God in prayer during times of suffering, that suffering becomes the experience, or perhaps you might say that suffering becomes fuel for our faith because we see how God is faithful to us. We get to experience what it means that God is faithful to us as we, in prayer, remind ourselves 
and call out to God for him to be faithful to his promises. When we suffer, prayer is one of our greatest tools to remain dependent upon the Lord. But it's easy to fall asleep. In Peter's case, it was literally in Gethsemane. In our case, it's figuratively easy to fall asleep by losing sight of this truth and living as though that day of Jesus' return isn't imminent. We want to avoid that. We don't want to fall asleep. We want to watch and wait well for Jesus. And Peter tells us to do that by praying and that our prayers are helped by being self-controlled and sober-minded. I want to talk about those two words for a moment here, self-controlled and sober-minded. These words are setting up a contrast for us. So if you've got a Bible open, if you will, scan back up to the first couple verses from chapter 4. Chris preached on this last week. Peter's setting up a contrast between the community of people who live by the Spirit, self-controlled and sober-minded, and we'll see more of that later today, and a contrast between the communities of those who live by the flesh. So, back up in verses, verses 1 through 6. The contrast he's making is to sensuality, to drunkenness, and drinking parties, orgies. These are ways of life that are neither self-controlled nor are they sober-minded. The point Peter wants to make here is for us to stay sharp against sin because living in these kinds of sin will undermine your prayer life and make you spiritually ill. I want to talk about that for a moment as well because just like in Peter's day, living in a self-controlled and sober-minded way is going to be contrary to some pretty enormous forces in our culture that want to take advantage of us. Those, those words Peter's are using, self-controlled and sober-minded, uh, self-controlled is often used in the sense of kind of keeping a clear mind and controlling yourself. So self-controlled is a great, uh, great translation for that. Sober-minded is often used in reference to not being drunk, specifically with wine or something like that. So not being drunk or given to drunkenness. And I believe Peter's talking here very specifically about how our prayers are helped by being free of the mental and spiritual cloudiness that sin and a reliance on substances bring, like getting drunk, or really anything that helps you escape reality. Because that's often what we're doing when we're pursuing sinful activities or pursuing uh, drunkenness. We're trying to escape reality and perhaps a reality of suffering that we might be experiencing in some way. So let me speak for just a moment to anyone who may be listening who has been looking for comfort using sin or some substance like alcohol to escape reality through too much drinking or something like that. As you know better than most people, those escapes aren't working. The reality that you're trying to avoid doesn't get better this way, and most likely it's getting worse. But what the Lord offers you is an alternative here. Using prayer as one of your tools to confront the reality of your suffering will transform that suffering into a part of your story and fuel for your faith that God can redeem. I'm not saying that just pray and your life gets fixed. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I am saying that the paths of avoiding pain or trying to escape reality by covering it up or escaping it with sin or substance abuse will never actually work. And there is a path that the Lord offers where you don't have to escape reality, but it can be healed in you. Peter's here giving, Peter here is giving us a very positive vision of the way of the Christian life, a prayerful watching for the Lord's return, 
with minds that are clear and free from sin and abusive substances will cause us to be formed into people that are dependent on the only one who is actually capable of delivering us. Jesus calls us to watch and pray. That's the first thing we do to prepare for his return. Now, one quick encouragement together here before we move on to our last point. If the idea of prayer immediately strikes you as either daunting or perhaps guilt-inducing, because you don't feel as though you pray enough or know how to pray, I just encourage you not to allow that feeling to stop you. As G.H. Spurgeon once said, it's by praying that we learn to pray. And the more we pray, the oftener we can pray and the better we can pray. So in other words, what he's saying is that we learn to pray by doing it. And if you feel you don't know where to start, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer for a reason. Every line in that prayer contains much of our daily experience. So I encourage you to begin there and use that prayer as a guide for your own prayers and for how to navigate what you're experiencing in your life. Well, this is going to take us to our third point this morning. We've seen how that we prepare for the end. We prepare, we prepare for the end by protecting our prayer. And now we prepare for the end by loving our Christian siblings well. So if you've got your Bibles, take a look down at verse 8 with me. Peter writes this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, as I mentioned, Peter here is drawing this contrast between the ways of a community that's marked by the Spirit and the ways of a community that is marked by living for the flesh. And perhaps the most important feature for the community of the Spirit is to be earnestly pursuing love towards one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter's probably quoting from the book of Proverbs here. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, which says that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So what Peter's saying is that for the thing we call our church community here at Hope Fellowship to work, we have to earnestly love one another. And when we are earnestly loving one another well, that is what will make community possible. Because when sin crops up, which it will, this is the only way for community to continue existing without becoming hurt or fractured, people becoming bitter. We all know that everyone here is a sinner. That's obvious. But it means that everyone here is probably going to get annoyed with people here. You're probably going to get hurt by people here. In fact, you've probably done the annoying and the hurting as well yourself. And so have I. The only way that we can continue in community with one another is by loving earnestly because love helps cover over those sins. Uh, last year, Megan and I were on a road trip. We were staying out in this Airbnb, kind of out in the boonies, and I decided that I wanted to try and change our oil. I'd never done this before. I, don't, I know very little about cars, which is uh, entirely my fault. My grandfather is very good with cars, tried to teach me a lot about them. It was a failure of the pupil, not the teacher in this case. Um, but anyway, a friend of ours said that they had the same model of car. They said it was really easy to change the oil. I can tell you the whole story if you want, or ask Megan the story later. It's, it was just a complete comedy of errors, but it kind of ended in this moment of me finally figuring out how to get this plug off the bottom of the car to get the dirty oil out into a bin and put the new oil in. And I got about two-thirds of the way putting the new oil in when I realized I hadn't plugged it up again. Um, so I had just created both an ecological disaster by pouring about, I don't know how many liters of oil onto the ground, but then also 
kind of a car disaster because we needed to go get to an auto shop. We were out in the middle of nowhere, and we didn't have oil in the car. So by God's grace, there was actually an auto shop that was only a few miles away. We had just enough oil pressure to get there, and it all worked out okay. Um, Now, if you do know anything about cars, the end of that story probably makes your insides crawl because as I just found out, the reason that you put oil in your car is because there's all these pistons and gears and explosions going on inside your vehicle. And if there's no oil to lubricate the engine while that's happening, you're going to destroy your engine. Now, I think Peter's kind of giving a same sense of love, how love works in our community here. It's what he means when he says love covers a multitude of sins. When the goal of loving each other is something that we're seeking after earnestly, then the sins that cause friction and relational damage are overlooked and forgiven. And it makes Christian community a possibility. I think it's probably worth asking what this kind of love looks like. How, how, How do we go about this? How do we love one another earnestly? Peter's going to answer that question for us in verses 9 through 11. So go ahead, open your Bible again with me, or look down in your Bible again. Let's read verses 9 through 11 one more time. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God that God supplies. So Peter's vision of love and action is not in any way meant to be romantic. This is meant to be taking the gifts that we've been given from God and using them to serve the community of God together. As, well, as he says at the beginning of verse 10, as each has received a gift, use, gift, use it to serve one another. And so what Peter's trying to get, get across to us is the gifts that God's given to us, which includes our talents, our resources, our homes, as he explains with the hospitality, the things that we're good at, all of our resources, all of those things have been given to us freely. And perhaps the greatest gift that we've been given freely is the gift of grace and salvation from Jesus Christ. We did not have to purchase those things. All of them are gifts from the hand of God. So just as we've been given those things freely, God gave us those things freely to now use as stewards. They've been entrusted to us, and so now we use them freely to serve the people around us without expectation that we're going to get stuff back in return. One tangible example Peter gives of this is hospitality. Practicing hospitality without grumbling. Now, this is a helpful reminder how we steward the gift of a home matters. Whether it's an apartment or a condo or a room or a house, it doesn't matter. But the way that we steward that gift of a place to live matters. It's probably easy for many to act the part of a loving host, right, to serve people to their faces, but then uh, to let our hearts or maybe our mouths start grumbling about those people or complaining once they've gone. So what Peter wants us to see, the Lord is not worshipped by good deeds of serving people that are accompanied by false hearts. Hospitality that serves our brothers and sisters in our actions and our hearts is a way that we worship God. Now, if to this morning, instead of this being a sermon, if this were a Bible study, what I would want us to do is read through the entirety of Matthew 24 and 25. We do not have time to do that this morning. If you have time later today or this week, I encourage you, read through Matthew 24 and 25. 
because I suspect that Peter is thinking about that set of parables in the chap uh, in those the parables that are in those chapters as he wrote this part of the letter. So in those two chapters in Matthew, Jesus is talking about his second coming. And he's talking about the importance of watching for him to come back and waiting well as we do that. So the first, one of the parables he tells is the parable of these, these young women who are at a house to celebrate a wedding. And they were supposed to keep their lamps lit waiting for the bridegroom to come. Some of them got lazy, their lamps went out. But some of them kept their lamps burning. They kept watching and waiting for the bridegroom to come. And when he did come, they were rewarded for that. Later on, Jesus talks about the parable of the talents, where these different managers are entrusted with different amounts of money when their boss goes on a trip. And when the boss gets back, the ones who used the money and invested it well and made more money back for their boss, they were rewarded with even more money that they were then entrusted to use. But the manager who kept the money for himself and hid it, he lost all of it. And in the parable, the boss is meant to be Jesus. The managers are us, his followers. And those talents are any gifts or resources or actual talents that God may have given to us. So the reason I bring this up with Matthew 24 and 25 is I believe there's a connection between these ideas of being watchful as we wait for Jesus to return and stewarding what we have well. That's part of how we watch well for Jesus. We take what he's given to us and we steward it well. Now there's all sorts of different gifts that are represented in God's church. In this room, there's all sorts of gifts represented. As Peter says, we are stewards of what he calls God's varied grace. There's all sorts of ways God's grace has worked itself out in our lives and different kinds of gifts he's given to us. But those have been given to us not just for our own enjoyment or for our own gain. It's good to enjoy God's blessings. But God has given those things to us. Every, everything we possess, talent, skill, resource, we've given those, been given those to steward well. And what I believe is being taught here is meant to be this posture towards our things, towards our abilities, towards our money. A posture that recognizes that they aren't ours. That these things are not ours. They've been given to us by God. And so, if you've been coming to our church for a while... And the Holy Spirit's been pricking your heart to use your time or your talents or your resources for your church family here. I would just encourage you to pay attention to those pricks. There's all sorts of ways to steward your gift well, whether that's in service of our church here or in service of the church more broadly. There's all sorts of gifts and talents and resources that people have been given here. So I encourage you, use them. Use them as a way that you watch and wait for Jesus to come back and to worship our God together. As we do this, as we serve the church with our gifts, some by speaking, some by serving, many by quiet acts of love and care and hospitality to our church body, Peter wants us to know that we are worshiping God through that service. Peter wants us to see that when we serve our brothers and sisters, and when we do that, drawing attention not to ourselves, but we draw attention to Jesus, that this is a way that we as God's body, as Jesus' body, glorify him together. So look down one more time with me at verse 11. Peter says, There's a way to use these gifts that draw attention not to ourselves, but to the Lord. He says this, Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ.
So Peter's saying here, our goal should always be to draw people's attention to the Lord. As I speak, or as anyone who's given the responsibility of preaching up front, or teaching in any way at our church, those words are supposed to be carefully considered to make sure they are consistent with Scripture, to draw people's minds to God. So that phrase, oracles of God, means, means it's as though they're God's words, right? So, so not that like my words to you are God speaking to you necessarily, but it is a responsibility people have who teach to make sure that people's minds and hearts are impressed with God's truth, not with their rhetoric or their intelligence or something like that. The same goes for serving. When, when we serve others in our congregation, we want to do that in a way that acknowledges that our ability to serve comes from the strength given by God, rather than trying to draw attention, perhaps subtly or not subtly, to yourself as one who's serving a lot. Peter says, this isn't the way that we serve God's people. We direct people to Jesus, not to ourselves. So this is the vision that Peter has for the church. It's one where people who have been redeemed by Jesus respond to the gift of grace by recognizing that everything they have is a gift from God and to use those gifts for the good of the church body. And so as we do that, we get to magnify Christ by using those things. I find that to be a great encouragement. Our returning king is much more magnificent than anything we could draw people's attention to in ourselves. We want people to see God. We want them to know the news that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he died for the sins of those who follow him. We want others to see that life comes from him and that we're just followers. We are grateful followers, but we are followers who have been given gifts by God to draw attention and glory to the almighty God who does give all things to us. So, As we conclude, brothers and sisters, these are the ways that we prepare for the return of our king. He will be returning, and from the perspective of eternity, that return is close. It's at hand. It's drawing near. And while we don't know the time that he's coming, there will come a time, there will come a day when we're all going to hear the sound of that trumpet. And we'll know all the answers to those questions that we asked at the beginning today. And the king will return. And so this is how we prepare for that. We prepare for the end by protecting our prayer and by loving our Christian siblings well. And as we do these things, we pray that God will be glorified by our actions in this community. So, Hope Fellowship, let's remain sharp in our prayer. Let's continue to view our gifts not as our own, but as gifts from God to be used to serve one another with our time and energy and talents and resources. And as we all pray together, may Jesus return very soon. Let's pray. Father, our hearts join the hymnist when she writes, When the trump of God shall ring, I shall stand before the King. In his likeness, Jesus' likeness, saved by his redeeming grace, I shall meet him face to face. We long for that day, Lord, and as we wait, we ask that you would keep us watchful, waiting well, and seeking you in our prayer, serving and loving one another well as Jesus first served and loved us. We ask that you would prepare us for his coming. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.